Okay, we are concluding our mini-series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, this Sunday, and it's concluding with uh, just one verse, Matthew, 12, Matthew 7, verse 12. So if you've got a Bible, you can open to Matthew 7, verse 12. It's one that you have probably heard before. Let me read now from God's Word. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word when it exposes us. We're thankful for your word when it encourages us. We're thankful for your word when it challenges us. Lord, will you soften our hearts today and open our ears and open our eyes that we might hear what you have to say to us, that we might see Jesus more clearly, and that in seeing him, we might know him and love him. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. One verse. One verse in Matthew 7 that has uh, become a pretty popular verse. In fact, this is probably one of the most popular verses, the most famous verses in all of the Bible. All right, Mike's doing that weird thing again. Over uh, over history, there have been plenty of people who have decided uh, that they're going to cut particular things out of the Bible. Thomas Jefferson was famous for this, for having a Bible that was all cut up. He only left in the places, that, the things that were the most pal- palatable to him. I guarantee you this verse was left in Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Because this is, if Jesus had a publicist, this is what his publicist would be saying, like, Jesus, more of this, okay? You know, less of the, like, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, less of that, less of before Abraham was, I am, less of tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Less of that stuff, more of this, because this is what people like, this is what people enjoy. And the truth is, it is universally appealing because it is infinitely practical and seemingly infinitely simple. It's the thing that other secular books are written about, how we treat other people. But I'll tell you this also, is that if we were to actually do what Jesus commands us to do here, it would revolutionize all of our relationships. That is no overstatement. That if we were to do what Jesus commands here, it would change our relationships, it would change our communities, it would change our cultures, it would change our world. So let's dig into this today and see what God has in store for us. There's a connection actually here between what Jesus says here and what we talked about actually a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember if you were here when we talked about Jesus saying, do not judge lest you be judged. And we said there was a difference between judgmentalism and good judgment, between condemnation and discernment. And we said that we're actually called to discernment. Christians are called to discern what is right in particular times, and oftentimes we are called to discern what is right in relationship with others. How am I supposed to proceed in this relationship? How am I supposed to, uh, to proceed with this person? How am I supposed to respond to this person? What am I supposed to do in my interpersonal relationships? 
Well, here's what we're going to lay out this morning is that discernment starts with empathy. The key to discernment is empathy. But there's more because also the key to empathy is self-knowledge. And the key to self-knowledge is actually gospel awareness. So the key to discernment is empathy. The key to empathy is self-awareness, and the key to self-awareness is gospel awareness. We'll take that apart. Let's look at the first one first, discernment. What do we mean by that? Well, let me just say that, uh, I'll tell you a story first. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was, I took my family, picked up our our, our son, my oldest son, who's a freshman uh, at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, he has plans to go to Texas A&M University, as much as that hurts my heart. Uh, but we you took, picked him up, took him to A&M to give him a tour of campus, to meet with a counselor, just to get him excited about touring campus. And it was. It was a great, really a great trip. But if you've ever been on any kind of tour, you've probably seen this dynamic happen where, you know, the, the person who's in the front of a line when everybody's traveling around into dif- in and out of different buildings, and the person in the front of the line opens the door for the, for the next person in the line, but then they kind of forget that there's like 25 people in the line, and you kind of see that smirk on their face when they realize like, oh, I'm holding the door for everybody. And that happened actually, this one guy, and you could kind of tell he, he, you know, he was happy to do it, but he kind of smirked like, yeah, I wasn't really ready to hold the door for everybody here, but he did. And then later in the tour, it was really nice. A different guy, I think having seen what this person did, decided, okay, it's going to be my turn. And he took the door, and he held it for everybody, and everybody went through. Well, that's really nice. It's a nice thing to do. He actually saw one person serving, and that spurned him on to service as well. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about response. He's not talking about doing the thing that somebody else has done for us and actually giving them back that good thing that they've done for us. He's talking about proactivity. He's talking about what it means to actually put yourself in someone else's shoes, someone else's skin, and to do what is good for them without them having done it for you. Jesus is talking about empathy. Now, there is a distinction, sometimes we get these things confused, between sympathy and empathy. Here's very quickly the difference. Sympathy is the ability to understand someone else's world from the outside. For instance, uh, in the early 80s, there was not much known about autism. And so, typically, if you'd go to a park and you'd see a parent uh, with an autistic child, most people would would look at these parents with kind of condemnation, like, why can't you just keep control of your kid? What is wrong with you people? And then in 1988, the movie Rain Man came out, which is about an autistic adult. And autism actually became a part of the public conscience in in a totally different way. And, And people actually, parents then, when they would see Uh, when they would see other parents maybe struggling with their kids, they'd actually then go up and say, oh, is your child autistic? I've seen Rain Man. He's like Rain Man, right? See, there was a switch that allowed people to actually start to see and understand someone else's world. And they could stand outside and see someone else's world and say, I'm sorry for you. That's sympathy. Empathy actually takes it a step deeper, though. Because what empathy does is not to say, I'm sorry for you, but I'm sorry with you. 
There's a, a woman, a writer named Brene Brown, who, who studies and writes a lot about shame and a lot about empathy. And she gives this beautiful illustration of the difference between sympathy and empathy. She says, imagine, you know, somebody has kind of crawled down into an emotional hole. Here's a person who's down kind of at the bottom of a well, at the bottom of this hole. And the sympathetic person looks down from the top and says, hey, I'm so sorry you're down there. But, you know, look on the bright side. Things are going to get better. Everything's going to be all right. The empathetic person, on the other hand, crawls down into the hole with them, puts their arm around them and says, I don't just feel sorry for you. I feel with you. I know what it's like to be here. I'm here beside you. I'm ready to let you cry on my shoulder. In fact, Brene Brown says the two most powerful words in the English language are me too. I feel what you feel. She actually says this uh, in a TED talk that was about a year before the Me Too movement happened. So she was pretty prophetic about that. Powerful words. I understand, and I'm here with you. That's empathy. There is a difference between sympathy and empathy. And I think Jesus is saying, if we're going to actually properly discern how to relate to other people, we have to be able to climb into their skin. We have to be able to climb down into the hole with them. Now, it's good for us to pause, I think, and just say, what is it that keeps us from being empathetic? What, keeps, what prohibits empathy in us? Here, it's, there's a lot of things, but here's just three of them. How about this one? defensiveness. If I have put up walls to defend myself or my opinion or my point of view, if I have put up kind of a defense, then I can't ever enter into your world, can I? Because there's a wall between us. My defensiveness keeps me from being empathetic. Or how about this one? Fear. Because, you know, if I know more about who you are, if I hear your story that might actually change the story that I've been telling myself about who I am. And that is scary. Because if I know you and I walk in your shoes, that might change the way that I think about myself. And I'm not sure I can handle that. That's scary. So fear actually keeps us from empathizing with others. Or how about this one? Zero-sum thinking. You know what that is? Zero-sum thinking is basically thinking of the world like it's a pie. There's a finite amount of whatever it is, whether that's wealth or time or emotional output. And if you have a bigger piece of the pie, I have a smaller piece of the pie. So you can't get more because in you're getting more, I'm going to get less. Well, that's going to keep me from entering into your world because I want to protect my world, don't I? You see, of course, the thread that ties all of these things together. It's all about me, all about me. I can't enter into somebody else's world if I'm only concerned with me. Or can I? Because Jesus does something actually pretty ironic here, which leads us to the second point, is that not only is empathy the key to understanding discernment, but self-awareness is actually our key to understanding empathy. I mean, do you hear the way that Jesus says this? How are you supposed to go about the process of discerning? Well, you think, what would I want to happen if I were in that person's shoes? Jesus is actually always asking this. It's really fascinating. Uh, we just, you know, last week talked about the prayer. He's asking us to prayer is ask. Ask God what you want. Seek. 
knock, you will find because God loves to answer. Later on in Matthew, we see Jesus approach a blind man, and this blind man who's begging cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And all of the disciples tell him to, to you know, be quiet, be quiet, he doesn't need you. And Jesus comes up to the man and he says this. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He asks him very plainly, what do you want? It's a helpful question for us. I think Jesus is telling us is that when we are going through the process of entering into another person's world, it's helpful for us to actually start to ask the question of ourselves, what is it that I want? So what is it that we want? How about I go first? Let me give you some things. I want you to appreciate me. I want my friends to appreciate me, to value the things that I do and bring to the table. I want you not to categorize me by my job or by my race or by my gender or by my past. I want you to know and like me for who I am, not just as a category. I want you to be compassionate about my struggles. Whenever I do things wrong, I not only want you to forgive me, but I want you to actually enter into my world with compassion. I want you to really listen to me. And I mean really listen, not just listen to bide your time in order for you to make your point next, but actually to listen to me. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the best-selling you know, personal development and business books of all time, just had its like 30th anniversary. One of those habits is listen first before you speak. Sound familiar? Listen to me. That's what I want. I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. Like when there's a question, I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. I want you to cut me some slack. I want you to, to trust me in many ways. I want you to help me. Right? I want you to give out of your resources to help me, not because I deserve it, but because I may need it. I may need help. I want you also to advocate for me. If you have power, I want you to even use your power to advocate for me if I don't have it. I desire that. And I want you to know me, like me, want to be around me. Anybody resonate with any of those things? The things that we want deep in our hearts, the things that we want at the core of who we are, are also the things that others want as well. For when we, so when we enter into the process of discernment and enter into the process of stepping into another person's life, it's helpful to actually ask ourselves those hard questions. What is it deep down that I really want? Because that actually helps us discern how to respond to somebody else. So discernment starts with empathy. Empathy starts with self-awareness. And then this one, it's a little maybe confusing at times, is that our self-awareness has to be based on our gospel awareness. The confusing part isn't that, but it's maybe where I'm getting it from the text. Let me read this for you one more time. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What does Jesus mean when he says, for this is the law and the prophets? Maybe your translation says, for this summarizes the law and the prophets. Well, there's a few things actually, I think, going on, a few different kind of layers that we can pull apart. 
And the first is thematically, this matches well what the law and the prophets say. And by law and the prophets, oftentimes when, when a New Testament writer says law and prophets, they're talking about the, the, the entirety of the Old Testament. And thematically, what Jesus is saying here is really about uh, other people and increasing their flourishing as human beings, recognizing the image of God in others and desiring them to flourish. Well, that is so much actually of the, what the Old Testament is all about. God creates human beings in his image. He tells them to flourish and increase so that, uh, so that they might produce more of that image. God rescues them out of slavery so that they might flourish. He brings them into a land that's, that's a land described as a flourishing place. The prophet's job so oftentimes throughout the Old Testament is to speak to the king so that the king might promote flourishing in his people. And through those people, the rest of the world might flourish. That's the promise he gave to Abraham as well, is that through you all the world would be blessed. So, so much of the story thematically of the Old Testament is about the flourishing of humankind. And Jesus says it's just like that. If you encapsulate that, if you boil that all down, the reduction sauce would look like what Jesus says right here. So that's first thematically. Second, you know, it really, it, it, it's really kind of almost a replacement, isn't it? I mean, think about this. If we all actually took this advice, if we all actually did what Jesus is commanding us to do here, would there really be any need for law? Would there be need to, to prohibit uh, stealing if everybody actually uh, acted in accordance with the, what they thought would be, would be good for their neighbor? Would there be any need to prohibit violence? Would there be any need to, to, to protect property? Not really. Jesus is saying is that when you really boil it all down, the need for the law is encapsulated here as well. But there's also something else a little more subtle going on here. If you look at these words, the law and the prophets, they're used here. This is very close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They're also used, again, close to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So in chapter 6, really in the first few verses when Jesus is opening up, he uses that same phrase, the law and the prophets. And what scholars will tell you is that so oftentimes in, in, in the Bible, uh, that discourse, because remember in, in, in Greek and Hebrew, when there was originally written, there's no punctuation. You had to prove your point by repetition oftentimes. And so if you were to use a phrase once and then again toward the end, it, it works in what they call an inclusio. It's like bookends. It's like, it's like kind of these, you know, the, the things that help your books stand up. It's the beginning and the end. And so everything together is really what's being referred to. In fact, in your translation, you know, my translation said, so, in whatever you do. Your translation may say, therefore, whatever you do. You know that great little phrase, right? When you see a therefore, you're supposed to say, what's the therefore, therefore? What's it referring to? Well, it's probably not referring to what was immediately before it, which is Jesus talking about prayer, but I think uh, probably more probably, it's talking about the whole thing. It's referring to the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. We have those bookends, and we get the entirety of that sermon, and now Jesus is saying, therefore, based on this, here's how to act. So what has Jesus been talking about throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount? Well, he starts pretty early on by telling his disciples how to pray, starting with our Father. He then says, you know, don't go stand on the street corner and pray or fast like, everybody, like you want everybody to know you're fasting because your Father in heaven sees what is in secret. 
And then he says, don't worry or fret because your heavenly father cares about you and provides for you. And then he says, ask and seek and knock because your heavenly father loves to give you good things. Over and over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you have a father in heaven who loves and values and cherishes and cares for and provides for you. So being one that is loved, how do you respond? You respond in love. I want to close with this story that, um, that I'm not super excited to tell you. Because I was, uh, I, was in, I was in HEB the other day, and I was just going in to get, uh, to get a prescription, pick up a prescription. thought I was just going to be in there for a few minutes. And as I walked in there, and I'm around in the pharmacy kind of area, uh, I hear this, this woman behind me, and she's got a small kind of cart full of groceries, and she's talking on the phone to somebody else, and she's talking, I, I pick up pretty, pretty early on, about her financial situation. And she's telling her friend or whoever she's talking to, um, I'm just in a pretty rough time, and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. And as I listened a little bit more, um, it became even more clear that she had figured out she, she couldn't even pay for the, the small cart of groceries that she had with her. Now, why did I not want to tell you this story? It's because of what happens next, is that what happened in my heart was, you know what, you need to go do something else right now. And I, and I literally... I literally moved to a different aisle. I didn't really have to do any other shopping. But I made up some shopping in my mind so that I could actually get away from having to listen to her talk about her desperate state. And then I started to hear some other kind of voices saying, you know what, she, she probably actually did that on purpose. She may not be talking to a real person. She probably came up behind you and started talking, started pretending to be on the phone in order to kind of tug at your heartstrings because she's trying to manipulate you into giving her something that she, sh that she shouldn't have. And those were the thoughts that ran through my mind. And I'm ashamed to say that they called my name at the pharmacy and I took my prescription and I went home. I could have very easily purchased her cart of groceries. I could have very easily just walked up and talked to her. I could have looked her in the eye and said, hey, tell me about your situation. I could have said, I'm sorry for you. I could have said, I'm sorry with you. And I could have helped her. But I didn't. How do we warm a cold heart? How do we break that kind of action apart so that we actually can act in the way that Jesus is calling us to act? Well, friends, I started with a story that said it's, it's not about our response, right? But really it is, isn't it? It's not about us responding to somebody holding the door open for us. It's about us responding to our Savior and our Lord who has laid down his life for us. Who is the perfect flourishing human. Who came to do for us what our deepest heart desires. What we want so badly for ourselves but cannot do for ourselves. And he came to live that life and to die that death, to love and cherish us. When we go through the action of discerning 
How should I interact with another human being made in God's image? Friends, it's an act of response. Jesus has loved us. We can love in return. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a tremendous joy to say those words, to call out to you as our Father who loves and cares for us, who's welcomed us into your home, who's brought us into your family, who's given us everything, who has done not only what we could not do, but what we did not do to you. You have acted in the opposite way of the way that we have treated you. And in doing so, you have brought us to yourself. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Father, for your sovereign love and care. Thank you, Spirit, for the softening even of our hearts as you work through your word. We pray you would continue to be about that work even now. In Jesus' name, amen.